All of the government programs that we don't like are funded by theft. All of the government programs that we do like... Oh, sorry, there aren't any. Government is the reason that healthcare is expensive. Government is the reason you can't go to college. Taxation is theft. And welcome back to Taxation is Theft, the show that talks about all the ways the government is ripping you off. And believe me, there are more than you could count. I don't care how many fingers you have. Broadcasting live on Facebook and YouTube from an underground bunker deep within the jungles of Mexico, I'm Dan Taxationist Theft Berman, former candidate for President of the United States, currently in the race for Governor of Texas. And today I've got with me a good friend, John Gordon. He's a libertarian socialist, and he's going to talk to us about the nature of radical anarchy and turning the lens onto ourselves. But before we get started, I'm going to beg for your support. Uh, if you're watching the live streams, make sure to share them, like them, comment, ask your questions as we're going on, throw out your comments, throw out your insults. We love your insults the most. Those are the best because that gets us more reach on the social media algorithms. They love it when people hate libertarians and people talking about freedom. Um, so throw your best insults at us. Um, but of course, share and also head over to taxationstuff.info and support us by getting one of these really awesome hats that I'm wearing or... Uh, one of the flags that I don't think you can see that's not behind me right now, or any of the really cool taxation stuff swag that we have over there. And we've got some really, really awesome stuff. Um, Zach is saying already, you lost me at Libertarian Socialist. Stick around, actually, because this is really going to be awesome. Um, it's uh, it's actually... Oh, man, I don't want to jump too much into this yet, but let me just say, don't let that chase you away, because... Um, I've had John on before, and we really have great conversations where we really talk about the depth of libertarian philosophy. So don't let that evil word socialism scare you away. John, welcome back. How's it going? Hey, how you doing, Dan? It's good doing to see you awesome. again. Yeah. Right. So um, it, it's it's funny. Um, one of my, uh, oh, he's saying now your father was a hamster and your mother smelled of elderberries. So maybe he's just taking my lead and throwing oh, his, insulting his insults my family. Come on, you know, <laughs> throw it at me, not my family. They're fine. So this is all my responsibility here. That's a, that's a Monty Python quote. Maybe you're not familiar. Oh, yes. uh, I'm, I'm well aware. <laughs> all right. Um, um, I, I fart in your general direction. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I, I do want to start with that because I know a lot of libertarians and, you know, you, you brought up one of the tweets that uh, I posted over Christmas mm. and a lot of a lot of libertarians have this like, oh, great, another socialist. Um, mm. And uh, that's, you know, one of the things I really appreciate talking to you about is that, you know, I, I think we have we have a few differing opinions, but we have a lot of common ground and we're able to have really productive conversations. So that's what's really awesome about this. Mm -hmm. And if you're listening and you think that, you know, your, your position is one way um, and you, you, you absolutely don't want to hear anything about libertarian socialism, listen anyway, because there's a lot you're going to learn from this conversation just in how to have conversations with people who you might not agree with, because ultimately... You know, that's that's uh, talking about tweets because I've been I've been going on the rampage against the Libertarian Party in general about, um, you know, uh, they, they like to on social media, they like to put themselves in a bubble. They don't like to have conversations with people mm -hmm. who have a different mindset or use a different label from them. And that mm -hmm. isolates your mind. It prevents Absolutely. you from having a conversation. 
And if the rest, if you're right and the rest of the world is wrong and you isolate yourself from them, well, that's never going to change. They're always going to be wrong and you're going to be this one lonely guy who's just sitting around getting taxed all day um, and never doing anything about it. So yeah. we got to get outside. Yeah, we got to have these conversations. Yeah. Because you got to bring people on board. You want people to collaborate with you if you're ever going to get anything done. Um, I mean, in our last conversation, I think we had talked about how nobody has time to learn how to do every single thing. At some point, you're going to need someone to help you out, and you got to be able to negotiate that. Um, so, I mean, going into the topic that I brought up with you, you know, I think I might be an iconoclast. Um, I think a good way to define something might be to inverse it and talk about what its opposite is. Um, and as far as I understand iconoclasm and you know, it's sort of the dictionary definition being a person who attacks church beliefs or institutions. But if you flip that, um, maybe a dogmatist would be a, the opposite of an iconoclast, somebody who stubbornly sticks to a position, derives it from an assertion that they brought to the table rather than from observed evidence and experience. Um, so somebody who even in the face of a contradiction to the beliefs that they're bringing um, sticks to their beliefs, even in the face of material reality, you know, like uh, gravity is gravity, you can't deny gravity. Um, so then the reason that uh, I wanted to bring that up to you specifically in light of that tweet and uh, why I enjoy talking to you in general is because you are seem to me to not be a dogmatist, um, which I also am not, because I noticed that on the left, we also have our own um, ideological bubble. Um, there's a lot of folks who seem to not want to step outside of, uh, it's almost a certain language or set of manners. Um, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting too, um, because I, I think the last time we talked, we talked about the origin of the word capitalism and I had already mm -hmm. kind of been avoiding that word because I know it it kind of triggers people into not having a conversation. But um, a, a gentleman was actually messaging me on Twitter and we got into a conversation and, and you know, we, we, we started talking about labels and things and we started talking about my position on abortion because that, that one always comes up. People always want to know. And they ask if I'm pro-life or pro-choice and I always say neither. And I think this is really interesting because it, it ties into your point about you know, people, people, when they want to be dogmatic, they're like, they're like, okay, you are a person, therefore you must fit into one of these boxes, pro-life or pro-choice. And those boxes are extremes. And while, you know, there's a million different issues, right? Like mm -hmm. you might be for abortion, but you might say, yeah, but not after like nine months, because that's ridiculous, right? So there's varying degrees of people who are pro-life and pro-choice. But as soon as you say one of those words, there are so many people that are just going to assume, oh, oh, you're pro-choice. Oh, so you like aborting 12-month-old fetuses? Um, mm -hmm. and, and like, you know, they, they jump all the way to the extreme. And once you say the words pro-life or pro-choice, there's no coming back from that. You can't say, well, I'm pro-life, but you can't say I'm pro-life or pro-choice. But as soon as you say that word, all the assumptions are made and you can't come back from it. But if you say, well, hey, don't put me in, don't put me into one of those buckets. Mm -hmm. Let me let me let me tell you my position. Let, let's have a conversation. Then they're actually going to sit and listen. And granted, when they're listening at first, they're sitting there trying to like, OK, OK, he's saying words. 
uh, uh, let me use those words to try to figure out which box to put them in. That's that's what they're thinking initially. But when you when you use you know when you when you throw out some really interesting points and and you know don't get into a screaming match, you actually get people to think and. You might not change their positions, you might not reverse their minds, but you you at least get their brains working, and I think that's that's probably the best you can hope for. Um, you know, when when dealing with somebody who's you know running around asking, "Hey, what's your label? Can I be your friend, or can we get in a fight?" Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the best you can hope for in that situation. Yeah, yeah, and I think we also see that a lot with the two main political parties in our country. You've got the Democrats versus the Republicans, red and blue, they're duking it out. Um, It reminds me an awful lot of professional wrestling, um, (laughs) where you have, you know, you have the heel and you have the face, the hero fighting the bad guy, um, you know, and you have the whole narrative going on and the judges are in on it. Um, I, I think what they call it, it's kayfabe. Um, which is the act that they put on when they're not even in the ring. Like if they're just doing an interview, they interview as their character um, at all times. They have that public face that they keep up. And I think that's exactly what the Democrat and Republican parties are doing. They're face and heel, but they're still all working for the WWE. Right. Behind the scenes, they still go to parties. They still shake hands. They still have a good time. And you see that. Yeah, you see it when they're together in the Senate floor, even they shake hands and like they're really friendly with each other. They're like, my friend this, my friend that. They're more aligned with each other than they are with us. Right. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And of course, they they you know, they love driving wedges in between us Mm -hmm. um, because ultimately when we're fighting each other, that's when they get the most power. That's when they get, you know. Oh my God, we have to ban this. Oh my God, we have to take freedoms away. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's that's it's when a, they do that when we're fighting each other. And it gives us whiplash. Like every week, there's a new thing to be concerned about. Um, you know, it's that 24-hour news cycle. Everything is relevant all at the same time. Um, you can't even think straight with everything going on like that. You know, it really overwhelms people. Um, I know that just from me and plenty of folks that I talk to all the time. You know, there's there's too much far too much going on right it's interesting because I've, I've got a friend down here who um he's he's really into politics and he's always watching you know like fox news and cnn and i don't know i don't know what he watches but um you know he's 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 pretty much a, a left-leaning democrat um mm-hmm. n- not too extreme but um but it's interesting because we have these conversations and he always asks me like about you know some some current events and he's like mm-hmm. yeah what do you what do you think about this and I'm usually like, I, I have no idea. I, I don't watch news. I have no idea you know, what happened there. And, yep. he's, and he told me the other day, he's like, I'm amazed that you don't keep up with current. You're running for president. You're running for governor. And you don't keep up with current events like that. And I told him, it's because most of these events that they're throwing at you are just absolute distractions. They're trying to get us to fight each other over mm-hmm. you know, the dumbest things they can find. And when you, when you spend your time looking at those things, you know all the things that he mentioned... Um, none of them were about this 5,000 page this. And this was interesting. Cause I asked him like, what about this, this stimulus bill that just passed? That's like, you know, 50, what is it? 5,300 pages or 53,000. Pa- I don't know. It was a lot. And I was like, did you know that they had laws in there about the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama and horse <laughs> racing and like all this other stuff and all. And yeah. I mean, he really who knows? has no I idea. At it. Yeah. He, but it's like, it's like, it's like all the nonsense that he's talking about is all the shit mm-hmm. that the mainstream media is throwing at him mm-hmm. that he thinks is current events. Meanwhile, as far as this bill goes, he knows nothing about it. 
And and yep. if if he if he were like following current events and he needed to know anything, that's what he should know. But mm-hmm. that's that's like their that's their I guess that's what's inside the Trojan horse. Like and, you, know, you know what? It gets even more ridiculous because not even the people voting on these bills know what's in them. You know, they get them right. at the last minute. They haven't been able to read them. Um, and then it makes you wonder who's writing our laws. Um, this is interesting. Um, oh, hang on, I just got a message. <laughs> I use my phone as my webcam. Um, so it shows I got a, a cat if my screen Yeah, gets I got a little cat wagging his tail. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what I was saying, it makes you wonder who's writing this legislation. Um, these people need to leave me alone. <laughs> He's like, hey, man, I see you. I see you live on the Internet. Just wanted to call and say hi. Yeah. Um, so as i was saying um it makes you wonder and this is something that you know to a libertarian dogmatist might bristle their fur a little bit um that it is actually a private company that is writing our legislation it's the american legislative exchange council alec um and this company sells its services to other corporations saying hey do you want us to write legislation that will give you loopholes in the tax code, et cetera, so on, so on. We'll make the situation better for you in the government. Um, so then this company, Alec, pulls all the other companies, they pay Alec to write legislation, and then Alec presents this legislation to the senators who they're clearly not writing this legislation. They're not reading it. They don't have time to do so. They don't have the staff to do so. Um, I'm just going to put this on mute. Yeah, and I've I've heard of Alec before, and I saw um, somebody went to one of their conventions with a hidden camera um, mm-hmm. a couple years ago, and they got some they got some really bizarre footage of you know just just conversations that people were having and what they were doing. Yeah, did they um, tell me about them? And I I don't remember. It was it was it was a while ago. I'm sure it's on YouTube. If, well, maybe they took it down. Um, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but, but, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. You have these corporations and, and these are the lobbyists that everybody talks about and, and that sort of stuff. But it's, um, I mean, if you think about it, you look at the politicians and it's like, they usually have a couple talking points that, you know, that, that they're going on about, but you know, how many of those people in Congress know anything about healthcare to write a healthcare bill? How many of them know anything about horse racing to write a horse racing bill? No, the, the companies who are yeah. involved in these industries are the ones who write the bills and then they, they just mm-hmm. shake enough hands to get it to the right person to, or mm-hmm. they give it to, they hire a lobbying company um, that yep. basically just knocks on doors and shakes hands and pays bribes until you get the thing passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's infuriating, but, at the same time, it's it's. I look at that and I say that's our fault for letting it happen. It's all it's our fault for entrusting this much power to the government and allowing these representatives to just say, "Oh, like yeah, go to go to Congress and write as many laws as you need to," um, mm-hmm. for for not electing enough of these guys who are the guys you know um, like myself and you know so many other people who would say no i'm gonna i'm not going there to write more laws i'm going there to eliminate all laws all the laws that we have and to stop congress from passing more of these bullshit laws um and but that's never the direction that the people are are looking they're always looking in yeah congress is a mess 
And yeah, they're going to pass all these bullshit laws. But as long as I get one law in there that's going to benefit me, I'll be happy. And that's that's kind of what they've sold us on. And that's why, you know, you've got the Bernie Sanders crowd saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If we uh, as long as we get Medicare for all. Yeah, we don't care about all the other bullshit laws that they pass. As long as we get, you know, eliminate um, uh, the the college tuition debt, as long as we, you know, whatever, as long as we build the wall, they don't care about anything else. It's that one, like, sh you know, the shiny object that they're clinging on to. And as long as they get what they want, they don't really care that mm -hmm. Congress is passing all these other things that are just taking our rights away and, and you know, oppressing us or, you know, setting us up to be oppressed in the years to come. Yeah, and I, I, I do remember recall or I recall seeing a tweet from you or it was a Facebook post about um, simplifying these bills so that they can only have a certain number. I think you yes. said one, but like whatever a reasonable number of items in a bill, um, you know, or they have to be related to each other in a certain way or like putting limitations right, they, on it that way. Yeah, like they have to be one page or 10 pages or mm -hmm. something. And so apparently, I think it was Rand Paul that submitted a bill like that, and it just never went anywhere. But, but yeah, that's absolutely like one control that we can do because that forces them, you know, to 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 break this this like this five thousand page bill apart mm -hmm. into a hundred different votes. And when and then you know when it's like, oh hey, I heard your guy voted on the the bill to like give 50 million dollars to the experiment that that what throws drunken rat piss at 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 ostriches or something there's like you know oh yeah you your guy voted to fund that project and it's like that's more damning i think than like oh yeah your guy voted to pass the stimulus bill it's mm -hmm. like well, well yeah but we need stimulus like you know it, it's it's um I, I think there's so many different um benefits to having a system like that and one of them might just be that you know in in order for them to discuss every single bill and vote on every single bill takes so much time that breaking five you know five thousand pages into a hundred different votes might mean that they don't even get around to the last half of those things because there's just so much bullshit in there which means they're going to stop submitting so many bills because they know they're never going to get to it um, and you know there's no reason for our legal code to be as complex as it is i mean right. what we have is basically it's like a, a geographic uh striation of you know just laws on top of laws on top of revisions and you, like legal scholars they literally go through like you have to like cut and paste shit before we had computers um right and what's and interesting I, I think about that simple, too is mm -hmm. th th there's um there's legal precedent that says if a law is too confusing for the layperson to understand it, it's null and void because ultimately mm -hmm. we are the people who are supposed to be following these laws. And if that if those laws are written in such a way that we can't understand them, how can we be asked to follow them? But unfortunately, we have a, a, a screwed up court system that doesn't like to follow this precedent and likes to say, oh, well, I mean, you know, the prosecutor seems to understand it. So I don't know why you can't. Um, it, it's it's absolutely insane. And then uh, if you do actually go out and protest, as we saw with the protests this summer, the police will throw you in an unmarked van. Um, oh, yeah. If they even are the police. I mean, you, you have you seen the pictures of yeah. the, uh, the people in the fatigues in front of these vans that have no markings on them? You know, there's one with a cop car in the background. So, you know, the cop's not doing much about it. Right. Um, like what's going on with that? Um, 
Yeah, you I know? remember so that. So you, you have this complex legal code, but then if you try to stand against it or actually directly go at it in any way as a layperson, you get carted off. Right. Well, and it's especially difficult too because um, I, I'm I'm reading this book. Um, three felonies a day i think mm -hmm. um and i mean i don't know i've been reading a, a lot of like legal books lately but it's you know if you have an uneducated public that's willing to do whatever the judge and the prosecutor say well th i mean these guys know the law so if they say he broke the law and he doesn't deny the actions that he did then i guess that means he's going to jail that's back to that like dogmatic like well the government mm -hmm. says so Therefore, he's a criminal. He's guilty. And instead, the, the jury has the legal ability to say, yes, he did that, but we disagree that that's a crime. We think that the law itself is too complicated for people to understand. And therefore, you know, he couldn't have been, he, he couldn't, he, he can't be accused of violating a law that he couldn't understand. There was no victim. He, he caused no harm that's what a jury should be looking at and because they're not looking at that one you have too many jury convictions two 95 something percent of the of of all the criminal cases are pled out in in plea bargains because people are afraid of the juries because they know like hey you might be absolutely innocent but they're going to put you in front of a jury and that uninformed uneducated jury is just going to follow whatever the prosecutor and the judge say because those are the government the cops whatever the cops say because mm -hmm. that's the government why would they lie why would they want to put you in prison if you didn't break the law that's and the most people, people on jury duty don't want to be there they're just going to punch their card get in get out they right like like i i've been to jury duty and i I'll be honest, I didn't feel like being there. I didn't really look into the case. I just voted not guilty. Um, jury nullification, look it up. You should always do that. Um, but kind of circling back to the topic of iconoclasm. So then, you know, we agree, like, this is a problem. Like, we have a massive, you know, convoluted legal code that the average person cannot understand. So we stand in opposition to it. So we are a negation to that legal code. But then, to be radically, I am. Um, <laughs> I tried to turn off my notifications and apparently it didn't work. Um, I figured I would just suffer through it rather than spend too much time fiddling. Um, we'll just have a picture of a cat sometimes, it's okay. Um, so then you negate your negation. So you then become, you know, you have to present the alternative. So what is a more simplified legal code like? Because there will still need be a need to have standards for interactions between people who have competing interests. Um, you know, not everybody is going to agree all the time. There are going to be large groups that will have interests that are opposed to other large groups. And what standards would we use to negotiate those? You know, how would we make sure that that is fair, that nobody is infringing on anybody else's liberty? And there is the principle of non-aggression that, um, you know, I absolutely agree with it, but not everybody does. And what do you do if somebody violates it? Right. Um, what do you and, do if a large group of people violates it? What do you do if another state organizes itself? You know, it's the, the day after the revolution, you've achieved what you wanted, but now 
what do you build? What is the new thing that you put in place? Right. I think that's really interesting, too, because you have a lot of anarchists who say, you know, uh, anarchy does not mean no rules. It means mm -hmm. no rulers. So mm -hmm. what are those rules and what is wrong with putting those down on paper? Um, mm -hmm. And what's interesting is, you know, a lot of anarchists will basically have some some form of the non-aggression principle as their their rule or they'll start referring to God's law. And, well, you know, if you, if you start talking about God's law, well, there's a lot of stuff in there that doesn't really go along with the non-aggression principle, um, de especially depending on, you know, who your God is. But mm -hmm. you have all these, you know, all these different opinions of it. And it's, it's interesting that you have a lot of people who agree that, you know, we shouldn't have government's law. We shouldn't have man's law. We should have natural law. But then if you start to bring up different situations with them and what the consequences should be, they still have a wide variety of opinions on, on you know, what should take place. What is a crime? Mm -hmm. What isn't? And, and I think that's, you know, when, even when we look at the United States, which, which, you know, it didn't start out as anarchy or it wasn't, you know, the, the Constitution wasn't written in anarchy, obviously. But I think what they were trying to do was absolutely minimize what the government could have control over, which, which was interesting. And, you know, they refer to it as the American experiment and freedom and all this stuff. But, but what's interesting is, like, we still have certain issues where we don't agree on everything and so when in the beginning when they wrote that constitution like they didn't put the second amendment there because you know oh because you know well i guess to put it they did put it there to clarify that people had a right to defend themselves because they knew like yeah we can we can agree on the non-aggression principle but if we agree on the non-aggression principle well, then what's to stop somebody from coming along and saying, well, nobody should have guns because if we don't have guns, then we can't aggress upon each other. And then you could arguably ban guns under the non-aggression principle and people might buy it. And so I, I think, you know, to, to write things down on paper and clarify precisely what we want is a very important step. And you know, I, I, I kind of grew up like going through like all these like I, I was a seminar junkie for a while. I went through like all these like self-improvement seminars and everything. And like a, a lot a, a very recurring theme that people said is if you want to be successful, if you want to be wealthy, which was which was a focus a lot of, of a lot of these people. If you want to be happy, you need to define your goals. If you just say, I want to be rich someday. When is someday and what is rich? You're never going to get there. But if you can say, hey, I want to make $100,000 this year, those are the people who actually make it happen because they have they have concrete goals and then they set along all the steps to get there. And I think it's very much the same thing when we're talking about law. Oh, well, people should be nice to each other. Okay, well, that's that's great. But what happens when someone starts playing their music loud at night at 3 in the morning? And, well, I'm not, I have a right to listen to my music. I'm just enjoying myself. He put his house too close to mine. Like, you're going to have conflicts... And at what point do you say, okay, let's resolve this conflict? And how do you resolve that conflict? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do want to circle back to your point about um, violence and guns and kind of thinking about why, like, why are people aggressive towards one another? Like, where does that come from initially? And I think that 
there's a tie-in to that with the correlation of increased crime rates along with increased economic strife um, and inequality. The more like people's material interests are at odds with each other, the more likely they are to have an aggressive interaction with one another. And it comes very much down to needs like food, shelter, et cetera, like a person's material interest um, against their boss or against the state who is taxing them. Um, and it's kind of like finding a way to navigate conflicting material interests where one person wants or needs something another person has and negotiating that through, but negotiations don't always work out. And then somebody does resort to a violent method. So how do you get to the root of that and kind of prevent the conflict in the material interest to begin with. Um, and that's kind of the negation of the negation and to kind of push that all the way forward. Um, any notion that we come up with here and now in this moment is constrained by the ideological environment that we are in. Um, that's kind of what it means when you are a revolutionary and you are opposed to the current order or you are an iconoclast or you are opposed to the state as a libertarian, um, you are a negation of the existing order. And then when you achieve that, you are now at full subjectivity, you have achieved liberty. So then what's next? Um, and you kind of have to reverse from that being against the state because the state is no longer there. Um, and you have to bring, you know, what does that look like, you know, having an equitable distribution of resources that people are not aggressing against one another because their material needs are not at odds. Um, I'm not sure we can describe exactly what that looks like until we get there. Um, and a part of that is by reform or revolution, depending on the material situation you find yourself in changing conditions in a very real way, dismantling things that don't work, putting in new things that do work. Um, and depending on the amount of ability that you have and the amount of organization that you have versus the ability and organization that you are opposed to, your tactics might change. But until we arrive at our destination, we don't know what that looks like. Um, and we don't really know what we might become afterwards, but we do still need to be ready to turn that mirror to go all the way with our negation and then become something new ourselves. Right. Um, and because everything we are is constrained by our current reality. Right. And, and I, I think that's got a lot to do with, you know, they say we're creatures of habit and we mm -hmm. are. Um, but I think that's really interesting because you have, you know, you, you have this, idea so let's say the government were gone tomorrow and then you know some people you know like they're just like okay fine we'll live without government that's fine and then a couple weeks go by and then all of a sudden there's a dispute how long is it before somebody says well i'm right and you're wrong and the other person says well no i'm right and you're wrong and then somebody else says okay guys let's take a vote and now you're back on the path and it's it's because of habit right it's because um we know this system exists um, of, of like, yeah, we can just settle it with a vote. We know it's not going to make everybody happy, but maybe 
they're not always going to be happy because it's, it is a dispute after all. It's a difference of opinions. Um, and, and so, you know, but or maybe that's the system, though. Maybe the system is instead of instead of calling upon a vote to determine who's right and who's wrong, maybe the, it should be, OK, instead of the guy saying, let's have a vote, it should be, hey, let's have an arbitration and we sit down and have a discussion and we try to work things out so that everybody's happy. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's not. I, you know, but but the point is, if we don't have a new habit to replace an old habit, then we're going to sink back into that. And I think, you know, there's always the argument, oh, if you get rid of government, some warlord's going to come along. And I don't necessarily think that's true, but I do think that if people, I mean, government exists right now because people want government. And, you know, ask any anarchist, you go out into the world and say, hey, we should just totally get rid of the government. How many people are going to tell you, no, that's a crazy idea? Um, Because they can't imagine life without that. And I mean, think about this too. Like if you, if you've ever seen somebody when, when somebody dies, right? Not somebody that you know, but somebody, you know, one person and they know somebody who died and this person is in tears. Oh my God. How, I don't know how I'm going to live now that this person is gone. Maybe it's their, it's their spouse. Maybe it's their mother, their, their child, their world is shattered and they don't know what to do. I think that is very much in tune with they don't know like we're 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 kind of living we're living into the future, right? We're we're always like what what's my next step? What's the next thing that I'm going to do? Well, it's got to it's got to play into my plans for tomorrow and for the next week and the next year. We're living into the future and if that future is changed so dramatically that a, a big part of our lives, whether it's a person or our car, our car broke down. Oh my God, what are we going to do? How are we going to get to work? How am I going to have a social life? Um, you know, any, oh, the, the freeway is closed. Like this road is closed. Oh my God. Like it, it, sometimes it's even small things and, and it totally disrupts our, our projection of what the future is, which makes it so difficult for us to live into that future. And I think if you, you know, the same thing is true with government. And if you don't, you know, Maybe it might not be as bad as when, you know, when somebody dies and people are like, oh, my God, I'm crying. The government's gone. Maybe it's not going to be there. But there is going to be that kind of shattering realization of what am I going to do now? What have wait? Uh, when I turned 65, I was counting on a Social Security check. What am I going to do now? And if we don't figure that out, then, you know, there's a possibility that that people are going to you know struggle and get lost now. Some things are going to be really easy to solve, and some things are going to be a little bit more complicated. Yeah, I, I, I think it's more than just a hard time, too, because there are people, say, for example, who receive their insulin through Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Um, and life if that is no longer available to them, that is exactly life or death. Um, so this isn't just an inconvenience. It's not just, you know, my tire is flat. It's not just how do I get to work on time? It's where is my next meal coming from? where is my medicine going to come from? You know, these are very real material needs. And if you are wanting to upend the order of society, you need to make sure that these needs are provided for people. I mean, if you like, that's one of the, the main things of, mm -hmm. I I just want to backtrack because you, you say, and I know, I know these words offend people. These things must be provided, but Mm -hmm. I, I want to clarify this. That doesn't necessarily mean 
steal from one person and give it to another. It means unless you want to live in a society where there are potentially tens of millions of people who can't afford to survive, who are like they're they're literally in fight or flight for their own survival. And now you have to live in this situation with these people, which which could threaten your own life when they're when they're coming after you to steal from you and like, oh, yeah, well, I'll protect my property with a shotgun. Yeah, you say that now. Do you really want to live in that world? I mean, no. if it's especially if it's not, I mean, like you really want. Yeah, exactly. Like you want to sit on your porch all day just waiting for somebody to come and break into your house. No, you want to enjoy your life. You want to do other mm-hmm. things. And and you know, I think this is mm-hmm. this is a really important point that, that I've been like hammering on the Libertarian Party because their position on this is, well, let them figure it out. It's their problem. It's not mine. We were talking about this right before the show. They say, I don't have a responsibility to take care of anybody else. But I want to challenge that because the word responsibility is literally, literally the ability to re, to have a response, to respond to a situation. You have a response. You have an ability to respond. You don't have an obligation, which is true. But if you want your life to be better, your life exists in the world. And while you're not obligated to do anything to make the world better, anything you do, even if it's something small, even if it's as small as just offering suggestions or offering information and education to other people, which costs you nothing. If that's all you do, you are making the world a better place for yourself. Do it for selfish reasons, if, if anything. So uh, I, I think an author that it may um, help some folks to become acquainted with um, a famous anarchist writer by the name of Peter Kropotkin wrote mutual aid, a factor of evolution. And it talks about, um, you know, we are not naturally independent creatures. We are cooperative creatures. Um, And like all of our advancements are the result of people cooperating with each other. Every technological advancement, every feat that humanity has created is a result of cooperation. Um, It benefits us to do so. Um, so I, I think that is a good way to put it, you know, even if you're not doing it for other people, it benefits you to cooperate with others because people working together can do more than a person working on their own. Um, it's like I said before, nobody has time to learn how to do every single thing. At some point, you're going to have to rely on somebody else. Um, I can't build a house and an electrical grid and make sure the grid is powered and farm my own food and go hunting if I need to and make my own medicine and treat myself if I get sick. I don't even know what every illness that could befall me is. I'd have to go to a doctor. You know, we we do rely on each other in the end. Um, And, you know, even if you don't want to have a duty to help other people, other people are not going to help you unless you help them. Right. Because they have their own self-interest. Um, so, I mean, think about it however you want. You know, either everyone's working in their own self-interest to help each other, or if you're helping each other for a higher duty. If the end result is that people are cooperating and working together and making sure that things don't go um, to help, you know, like we, we want to have relatively simple lives where we can count on most things to be predictable for us, um, because living in an unpredictable 
you know, it's kind of, you know, where's my next meal going to come from? What's going to happen to me tomorrow? Am I going to get my insulin? We don't want to be in these life and death catastrophes. And unless we work together, those are going to keep happening. Right. And, and I think too, you know, this is, this is interesting because we, we are, and we're social creatures, right? But we're, we're mm-hmm. cooperative creatures. And, and I think, you know, libertarians hear cooperation mm-hmm. and they immediately think, no offense, they think socialism, government forced mm-hmm. cooperation, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't, I don't want to have to solve their problems, but it's, it's, it's not that we can have voluntary cooperation. And what's interesting is, is, you know, I'm not asking libertarians to solve other people's problems by even so much as doing things, but even, you know, expressing ideas, coming up with ideas or taking the time to educate people so that they, that they're not dependent on, on government systems. Um, you know, this, this is this is cooperatively improving our society so that we can get rid of i mean think about it i do want to challenge something here Um, the notion of socialism being when the government does stuff you know there's kind of this meme you know socialism is when the government does stuff and the more stuff the government does the more socialism it is um i think that was actually richard wolf whose work i'm going to paraphrase here um Socialism isn't necessarily the government controlling things. It is more of a collaborative process. Um, So if you think about capitalism and socialism in terms of how people relate to each other in them, in capitalism, you have employers relating to employees, somebody who has resources and needs a task done relating to somebody who needs resources and will do a task. And it creates kind of a hierarchy of the employer to the employee, but in socialism, Um, And he kind of describes it as the third kind of socialism, um, where you have a group of people coming together as equals in a company. So nobody is the employer, nobody is the employee, everybody brings what they have to the table. And and could withdraw or add to it at any time. Right, and um, I but think they come together as equals, regardless of what they necessarily bring. Everyone who's working on it is understood to be necessary for the process and equally important to it. Right, and I, I you know, I agree with the idea of that. the The idea with either of those systems is that anybody who wants to be there is there voluntarily, and they can leave whenever they want. Um, the 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 problem I see with this conversation specifically is not even so much you know what you just defined there's there's nothing wrong with that but just using those words it's like the pro-life pro-choice thing as soon Mm -hmm. as you say socialism a million conclusions are drawn about Mm -hmm. the about you know whatever subject you're relating to socialism even capitalism from from the opposite side it's the same thing and and i i've really come to hate both of those words because you cannot use them in a conversation without diverting into an entire conversation about, well, what does this word mean? And then getting over a fight. Well, that's not what it means. Um, let's get a dictionary. Let's compare notes or, well, this author is right. And that author is not like, that's why I hate using those words. But at the same time, you know, I, I can see, you know, if you, if you used another word in place, then, then you, then you're stuck with having to, every time you use it in a conversation, explain what it means. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think we had this conversation on Twitter the other day, actually, um, where you said something to that effect. And 
I had agreed, like, yeah, it is difficult, you know, like nobody can agree on what these words mean. Um, like I defined them in a specific way for the purposes of this conversation as the relationships between people in that system. That's how I typically do so, but not everybody that I would converse with does. And if I were to use those words, they get different meanings in their heads. And it's very much a problem that we don't have words that have fixed meanings that can be used to um, accurately convey what our ideas are. You know, everybody is so no. caught up going back to the bubbles that we're in. You know, we're in our bubbles where words mean certain things to us. And when you overlap the bubbles, the meanings of words get muddied, they change, they're ethereal, they, they no longer have a fixed position, they're no longer useful or have currency, which I, I think ties into your hesitation to use them. Um, but without words with fixed meanings, how are we going to have an effective conversation? Right. And, and I, this is what's interesting, too, because this, this is how, you know, advertisers and marketers like you, you know, if you talk to an advertiser and a marketer, the, the first thing they're going to tell you is, OK, we've got this new brand. What is the feeling or emotion that you want people to associate with this brand? Do you want it to be trust? Do you want it to be excitement? Do you want it to be, you know, what is it? And they will focus their campaign on associating that emotion to your logo or to your name or to your brand. And I think in the same way, that's exactly what's happened with these words. Because we can be having a conversation and we can be exchanging ideas. And, and try this at home if you're listening to this. Try this. Next time you have a conversation with somebody, just like drop the word socialism in there or drop the word capitalism there right in the middle of a sentence and watch because those words, it's not even about what they mean at that point. They're because, you know, if I say socialism, you don't just sit in your head and like recite the definition of what that word means. What happens in your head is it triggers an emotion to happen. And if you if you hate socialism, you're going to be triggered into an angry mode. If you love socialism, you're going to be triggered into a happy, happy mood. That's that's what's happening. And it's the same thing. And, you know, it's the same thing they do with advertising and marketing, which is, of course, exactly what politicians are doing. Um, you know, when they when they say, you know, when they talk about masks, when they talk about, um, you know, washing your hands, all this other other stuff, anti-maskers, they're creating, you know, they, they want us to uh, be afraid of and angry at people who are not following the narrative. Oh, he's not following the law. He's a bad person. We should be angry at them. They're teaching mm -hmm. us this. They're teaching like we're not naturally mad at people who aren't following government mandates. We're, we're taught to believe I, uh, that. And, and it's done through this association of, of feelings with words. I got really um, focused when you said that you, when you made this connection between marketing and politicians, um, it reminded me of uh, Edward Bernays who wrote the book Propaganda, literally coined the term. Um, later in his career, invented lifestyle marketing. Mm -hmm. um, and you see lifestyle marketing everywhere in politics and economics. It's kind of, you know, you wear the right clothes, you read the right books, you say, you know, you drop the right names. It's, it's this secret language that every bubble has, you know, it's kind of a marketed lifestyle. And there is lifestyle marketing for libertarians. There is lifestyle marketing for anarchists. There's a lifestyle marketing for communists. You see a lot of merchandise like 
capitalism literally sells communism right. to people in the United States. It's ridiculous. But like lifestyle marketing, it's, you know, you, people get very caught up in the aesthetic of being radical and the aesthetic of being, um, you know, what, whatever thing appeals to them. It's how we end up with lettuce that has Avengers characters on them. You know, it doesn't change anything about the lettuce, but people who adopt Avengers and everything about Marvel into their lifestyle will be more likely to buy that lettuce. Um, so this lifestyle right. marketing ends up being a very effective means of control because you get people to commit to a certain lifestyle, to a certain, you know, mode, to a certain language, wearing the, those certain clothes, reading those certain books. And then anything that's not within that lifestyle is outside because we have that natural in-group, out-group tendency. So, well, that's not in my lifestyle bubble. So I'm not going to engage with it. That's not for me. You know, I think that really ties back into uh, kind of how we were starting this conversation about having, you know, these uh, different bubbles that we're in and not engaging with each other's um, ideas. And then, you know, it kind of highlights that barrier of within these different lifestyles that are marketed, the words mean different things. Um, you know, capitalism in libertarian lifestyle marketing means a very different thing from capitalism in um, communist lifestyle marketing or even Republican lifestyle marketing. Um, and, and I think that we need to reach a point of a new universalization. You know, we, we need to be able to cross all of those bridges and that requires sort of a, a, a real engagement and a willingness to go outside of your bubble. That's, that's a really interesting observation, too, because I wonder, I mean, it's definitely there, right? The left and the right hate each other because of the, the difference in, in their understanding of the words socialism and capitalism. Mm -hmm. I wonder how much of that is intentional. How much of that is, hey, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to take, we're going to divide these two groups we're going to tell one that this word means one thing, and we're going to tell the other group that this word means something else. We're going to tell this group that this word is great and good, and we're going to tell this group that it's evil. Based on they're they're kind of already a little bit divided because of their their you know their their um, you know what's what's important to them. They're already a little bit divided, but we're going to that puts them in the groups. Now we're going to take those two groups and we're going to make them hate each other using the same word. So when they come together and when they start arguing and one of them says capitalism, then the other one's going to get triggered and say, oh, you're talking about that evil capital. I know about capitalism. That's evil. And, and they're going to just butt heads over this when really all they're saying is you like capitalism. You're bad. No, you like socialism. You're bad. And the definitions that they understand and the 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 actions that they associate that the the let me say the bad actions that they associate those with because a lot of times i mean there's bad actions associated with socialism and capitalism a lot of times those things are you know that's what they say when if if you like capitalism you must like all the bad things that go along with it if you like socialism you must like all the bad things that go along with it and that's really what's tearing us apart and preventing us from having these conversations that like actually productive, intelligent conversations is not getting past that fighting point. And maybe all we really need is before we, before we come up with a universal definition for the terms, maybe what we really need is a universal word that says, hey, 
I understand our, our definitions are different. Let's, let's start, let's get off of the words and onto the ideas and let's talk about ideas instead where we're not going to fight. Maybe that's the first step. And then once people start getting along with differences and different opinions and having more productive conversations, then we can start saying, Hey, let's, let's agree on a definition for, you know, this, maybe let's come up with a new word that we can all agree on. That means one thing. I, I'm, I don't know that it's going to be that easy. Um, and kind of going back to, you know, being an iconoclast and turning that back on yourself. You know, if you really want to connect with people, breaking down your understanding and being open to a new one, being ready to let go of your own definitions. Um, and I'm kind of reminded of a, a trending hashtag the other day. Are you familiar with that super capitalism hashtag that was around no. a couple of days ago on Twitter? Um, yeah. Well, just it was describing, you know, there was socialism and it was like, you know, poverty, et cetera, capitalism, prosperity, but then super capitalism. Um, and it was, you know, everybody has ownership of everything, et cetera, et cetera. I don't remember exactly the points that went down, but it was closer to my understanding of socialism than to my understanding of capitalism. But it was called super capitalism. Um, and, I, and I think that kind of ties into this, you know, letting go of your like not being a dogmatist about what words mean to you not being a dogmatist about your lifestyle that you are in getting out of your bubble letting go being an iconoclast of your own beliefs and kind of uh, being willing to set them aside to understand that a certain word might mean something entirely different to another person and to be able to incorporate that understanding um and uh, to be able to translate it, because um, it almost is another language. So there's some translation that needs to be done when you bring these other ideas into your worldview. Right. And I think that's really interesting. And I've, I've said this before that, you know, I, I, when I was younger, I was definitely more left-leaning. Um, you know, why doesn't the government just print money and solve these kinds of problems? Um, you know, rich people are evil. Um, you know, this was, this was a mindset that I had before and I didn't get out of that because somebody came along and slapped me in the face and said, you're wrong and you're a piece of shit for believing what you believe in. My mindset changed because I questioned the world that I lived in and I questioned whether or not I was right about it. I listened to people when they were teaching, um, when they were when they were giving me information and i didn't just take all the information and say well that must be true i still you know i still listened to it and i thought about it and i decided for myself what was right and what was wrong but if i had just put up a wall and and blocked all this out and stayed in that mentality that i was in a long time ago i wouldn't be where i am today my life would be probably shit i'd probably just hate a lot of people I'd be really unhappy. Um, I, I'd have really negative feelings about all kinds of different people who had different opinions from me. Um, and, and, and I've been there. And it's not a good place to be. But it's, it's just like you said, we have to kind of look back at ourselves and, and question our own beliefs. Because if we don't, I mean, this is, this is, this is the thing, right? If you're afraid to question your own beliefs, 
What are you really afraid of? That you might be wrong? That you might prove yourself wrong? Would you rather learn that you're wrong so that you can change? Or would you rather blindly keep thinking something that you never know is wrong because you're afraid to find out? Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's the, that's something we have to do. And I know it's scary. Like we, we don't, you know, especially like, you know, from the time your kids in, 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 um, you know, elementary school and you have to deal with bullies and like, you know, Oh, he's got those shoes. Those are like, you know, those are stupid shoes. And you know, like kids making fun of people for the dumbest things and like trying to fit in and trying to be right. And like, you know, you raise your hand when you're three and you answer a question and it's the wrong answer and everybody else laughs. Like, like there, there is a social pressure on us for us to be right. But that doesn't mean that what we know is right. We still, if we really want to be right, we have to be open to the consideration that what we, what we think we know now might be wrong. And we have to always, always be reevaluating that, especially since the world changes. What we know at one point might be right, and later it's wrong. Well, we, we, we do live constantly... in a consumer society, and the customer is always right. <laughs> so as long as you're the customer, you'll, yeah, you'll, be, you'll uh, be fine in life. <laughs> I, it, yeah, I think it's we, we all are the customer, truly. Um, you know, we are. Uh, you know, we, we don't think of ourselves as workers who are creating things anymore. Like the predominant narrative is that we are the consumers. You know, we're the population of consumers, and then there's the companies that produce for consumers. But how are these companies producing? It's workers. You know, and it's kind of we, we forget this whole other side of our being you know we're not just consumers we're consumers and producers simultaneously like every single person who works produces kind of contributes to the cooperative infrastructure that we have and you know we have a lot of problems with the infrastructure as it exists as we've enumerated throughout this video um i forgot where i was going with that <laughs> I, I want to go. I want to go back to something you said because you said the customer yeah. is always right, and we've mm -hmm. heard that. We've yeah. heard it so many times, and this is like you know we go. What's his name? Uh, Goebbels, the the German. Um, oh yeah. Propagandist. You know, yep. you say something often enough, it becomes mm -hmm. the truth. And yep. you know, the customer is always right. Is, is that is that a fact? Is that true? Mm -hmm. Or have we just heard that so many times that we believe it to be true? And I can think of so many examples where like. There was one where like this woman recorded herself. She went into like a, a CVS or something and she bought like a really big um, container of, of uh, laundry detergent that mm -hmm. was like, you know, 10 bucks or something. But she had taken a sticker off of something else that was only a dollar and she put it on there and she was trying to tell him like, yeah, it's only a dollar. It says it right there. And they were trying to tell him, no, we go by the barcode. That's mm -hmm. not the right price. And, and she yeah. wouldn't take no for an answer. She was, she was like, here's your dollar. And she tried to run out mm -hmm. with it or something like that. <laughs> Wow. The customer um, is not always right. There, there's a perfect example, but that's been like beaten into our head so many times. And there was another one that, that I wanted to say, um, uh, and I forgot what that one was. So I'm on par with you for <laughs> for tonight. Uh, well, you know what? Let me uh, let me tie it back into lifestyle marketing real quick. Um, we're all customers to whatever lifestyle we subscribe to. We buy the merchandise. We buy into it. The customer is always right. You know, whatever political issue there is, there is a marketed lifestyle around every 
sort of established opinion on that issue, you know, whether you're pro-life or you are um, pro-choice, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, or whether you are a libertarian, or if you're an authoritarian, like whatever lifestyle you choose, whatever opinion you decide to hold, there is a demographic, a marketing demographic catering to you as a customer, and the customer is always right. So as long as you can find media to consume and a mannerism to adopt that reinforces your worldview, and if the customer is always right, then you are perpetually correct and you never have to challenge yourself because you have all these news articles that say you're right and you have this t-shirt you're wearing that says you're right. right and you're wearing the hat that says you're right. You've bought into this lifestyle that other people have bought into and they'll help you defend the position and you'll you'll say the thing, you know, the catch line, whatever the phrase is, uh, you know, seize the means of production, taxation is theft, you know, you you signal to the demographic, you signal to the people who subscribe to that lifestyle. Bigot. Yes. You know, it, and I, I think that goes into the true nature of being an iconoclast and turning that onto yourself, examining, you know, what lifestyle demographic are you being pulled into and in what ways is it cutting you off from the people around you? And in what ways is it foreclosing the cooperation that, um, you know, the, the kind of cooperation that you consent to, not the kind that is imposed upon you by, you know, this sort of nanny state or whatever you want to call it but you know the the cooperation that comes from your capacity and your willingness um right. and i think that being able to step outside of the your bubble is the way to get there and, and i want to say you know because i love attacking uh, i i love biting the hand that feeds me libertarians mm -hmm. and anarchists you're you're not free from that same problem um i know mm -hmm. we all like to think we're we're above everybody else because we're smart we're the anarchists we know what's right <laughs> um you know we do the same thing and you know when, when i yelled status just a minute ago that when we yell status at somebody it's it's literally the same thing as when they yell racist at somebody without mm -hmm. without hearing what they have to say and like yes they might be a statist they might support government that doesn't mean you can't have a conversation with them but if you call them a statist and then you run off, then you're absolutely not going to have a conversation with them. So um, and then, you know, you're, you're going to go to your friends and you're going to do the same thing that Democrats and Republicans do. You're going to go to your friends and say, oh, my God, I ran into the statist today. He was so stupid. Let me tell you what he believes. And all you're doing now is you're talking shit about somebody. And and I, I want you to like I, I want you to like really think about this. You're talking shit about somebody who never had the education that you had. And maybe they went to Harvard, maybe they went to something else. They never learned the things that you know. And, and, and you know, let's be perfectly clear. When you drive in the United States, you drive on the right side of the road. Why? Because you were educated to do that. You were conditioned to do that. You were taught that's the right way to do it. Could we all switch and drive on the left side of the road? Absolutely. But it's it's a conditioning that we that was put into our heads. And everybody else has been put into this conditioning that the government must tell us how to do things, how to live our lives, because if they don't, society will, will crumble to a million pieces. We won't have electricity. We won't have roads. That's what they think for the same reason that you drive on the right side of the road.
they're no better than you. They were just educated. Their information came from a different place. And if you're not willing to be the person who's go, who's, who can wake them up from that, who can share information with them in a friendly way, not by insulting them, not by telling them how terrible they are for believing what they believe, for believing what they were taught because of the schools that they went to or the teachers that they had, whether they were in schools or not, whether they were from government or not, maybe they were just from their status parent. If you can't get over that and have a conversation with them, then you're doomed to live in a world full of hundreds of millions of people who support the thing you hate and that's never going to change. You know, and I, I think here's a moment where I might throw Ayn Rand a bone is um, <laughs> sort of what she would say about rational self-interest. And I might not be as dogmatic of in terms of selfishness as she may be. Um, but, you know, like when someone is using certain language that may throw off a red flag for you, usually comes down to their material interest, to something that they are concerned about losing or something that they are interested in gaining. Um, you know, whether that is, you know, like if the government falls, you know, where is my Medicaid for my insulin going to come from that life or death situation? You know, um, if I lose my job, where is the money for my rent or whatever when you come from? You know, it's this, you know, these material interests, we, we, we need food, shelter, medicine, et cetera. And we, know that this current system may not be perfect, but does, we are able to acquire it through the way things are to a degree. Um, and the unknown is scary, um, but in order for anything to get better, we do have to push forward into the unknown, um, which means dropping our own presuppositions. And if you want someone else to drop their presuppositions and lower their walls and reveal what those material interests are to you and for them to stop using their in-group language it often requires you to drop yours first and to kind of you know put your hand out first extend the uh you know be gracious so to speak absolutely and, and i want to say this you know because you you bring up the healthcare example i want to say this mm -hmm. a lot of people who support you know, they, they support a system where you steal from somebody to pay for health care. It's not because they like stealing. It's because they like health care. And when I talked about education, how many ways have we been taught how to afford health care? For most people, they've only been taught one way, and that's through a government program. Nobody has taught them any other way. And... I don't want to repeat the whole, the whole, my whole preaching again, but if, but we have to be the ones to share that information and teach people. But, but especially if somebody comes at you and says, yeah, we need Medicare for all. And you don't like the idea of paying for medicine with taxes. Then, you know, just like John said, first start a conversation with them, shake hands, make friends, find out what it is that they're really after. They're not after stealing, they're after getting medicine. When you find out what they need, what their specific problem is, and I use the insulin one all the time because I know that's something that affects millions of Americans, you can have a conversation about how that problem might be solved in a different way. And just by saying, well, what if, right? You don't say, well, this is the way it should be. You just say, well, what if, is it possible it could be done this way without having to do taxes? Because 
I think taxation is theft, and I want you to get your medicine without having to steal from somebody else, without having to have politicians steal and then take their cut off the top and then share share all the money with their friends, and then you get a couple pennies of it, and you can barely get the medicine that they promised you. I want to see a system where you can get the medicine you want without having to steal from me, and we're both happy. And you just throw out some suggestions. Get their minds thinking. Plant some seeds. That's that's really that's really all it is. It's not that difficult. But if we come out with this like this hateful spite because of what the 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 belief set that they have now, then we're no better than them. I mean, if you uh, if you take the word of um, people who theorize uh, the mon modern monetary theory, the uh, MMT. Um, the printing of money is not necessarily related to the taxation of money. The providing of services does not require taxation and the currency is simply an accounting method. So the government prints money to put it into the system and then taxes money to take it out of the system and it's kind of managing the volume within it. Um, and when you look at it that way, then you kind of, uh, you know, then who are you taxing? Who are you taking it from to begin with? And you look at, you know, what are uh, the entities where it tends to coalesce and stagnate and not become useful to people. And you kind of look into the banking system, you look into these large corporations that are just amassing more and more resources and hoarding them, hoarding resources and opportunities from other people. Um, almost the same way that the government does, you know, it's, a, it's this massive convoluted system as we go back to previously, um, which so, so it, it kind of goes back to this idea that like the government isn't really a material thing. It's just an infrastructure, um, the material, what, what is going on materially is people working, creating things, trading things, moving them around. The currency is a system to account what is moving and where and for what reasons. Um, but the currency isn't really the, you know, like the currency is not the things that we produce. The currency is just a, a pure commodity form. It's a, it's a symbol of value. Um, you know, it's numbers on a graph. So printing money and taxation, it's a way to reduce inflation, to raise inflation if necessary. It's, a, it's all numbers on a spreadsheet. It's, it's not what we eat. It's not what we put in our bellies or hold over our heads when it rains. It's, it's, a, it's just, it's a way to keep track of things. That's really all it is. Um, and then that comes down to who's keeping track of it. Who's doing this on our behalf? Do we want those people doing it on our behalf or do we want to have more control over the process? Do we want more transparency in the process? Um, going back to the American Legislative Exchange Council, how this private company um, behind closed doors writes legislation on behalf of other private companies to give to senators who don't have time to read the legislation before they vote on it. Where's the transparency in that process? Why are we not able to see that legislation be written? Why are we not able to see these laws be produced and be able to comment on them in real time? I mean, we have the internet now. We have the right. ability to do that. Like, we, there's people on Twitter all the time who like who are able to keep track of the, these myriad of discourses. Like, why are we not able to present the legal process in such an accessible way that everybody is able to have an input on it? Um, you know, because you know, I think a more accurate um, 
like like less taxation is theft, but more in the founding mythology of the United States, you know, the no taxation without representation. You know, like kind of, so if we acknowledge that the currency is an accounting system and we print money and tax it to control the amount of currency, then if we were to have a completely transparent taxation process that we have input on and it's every modification made to it, there's, you know, sort of like on a GitHub when you're coding software, like every modification of the software has a note on it. Like this is why the change was made to fix this problem over here and making that a much more transparent process um, that people like the layman can understand. Um, going back to, you know, if that legal precedent you were talking about, you know, if a layman can't understand the law, it's not really a valid law. So having a, an accounting system for what we produce and the work that we do that a layman can understand that is not so inaccessible that somebody else can use it to take advantage of people. Um, because at the end of the day, we do need some sort of accounting system to keep track of people's material interests. That's kind of, uh, like there needs to be some mechanism to manage those competing interests, as we had said before. Well, I think, I think um, what's interesting to a lot of people is the idea of of competing currencies. Um, mm -hmm. We have we have Bitcoin out there, which um, which is circulating. Um, it doesn't require a central authority to to you know, and it has a voting authority. It's, it's constantly inflating until it hits the, you know, whatever the, the apex is where like all the coins are out there. But um, until that point, the number of Bitcoins will increase, so, which is inflation. Um, but it's it's really all relative. And I, I kind of want to, well, well first let me, let me um, respond to one thing you said about taxation without representation. If you, um, that was kind of a thing that was around since like the early 1700s. Um, before the Declaration of Independence was even written. The Declaration of Independence actually says no taxation without consent. And I think that's that's one of the more important things. Like when we talked about the, um, uh, you know, the non-aggression principle. If you're putting money into a system, you created that money and you're putting it in, okay, fine, but how are you putting the money in? You're not just like sprinkling it around and well, I, I, I gave it and I can take it away. I can take it away, you know. It's, it's, they're spending it. So they're creating the money and then they're trading it. And when they trade it, it becomes somebody else's. So then to be able to take that back out is, is, you know, to, to take it from somebody who, who believes that it's their property. Now they're going to look at you as if that's theft. But I, I want to, um, you know, I, I want to look at, at one of these points because somebody, somebody brought up the suggestion to me about, um, you know, if the, the government were to just print the money or issue new money to pay for certain projects, it would create a little bit of inflation. Not that I like that idea, but what's interesting about that is, yes, that would work, but a lot of people are going to be concerned about inflation. And if all of my savings are in this inflatable currency that I know they can print, I'm not gonna be too happy when they do that. But now if I'm allowed to have another currency I mean, think about this. If if the government was not, if they didn't have this vendetta against Bitcoin, where they weren't trying to like regulate it and tax it and, and follow every little movement of Bitcoin, a lot of people would be using Bitcoin. 
And a lot of people would still be using US dollars. They'd use it in a different way. Just like gold now. Gold is not a major currency. It's, it's not it's not a primary currency. Most people use dollars when they go when they do a banking transaction. They use dollars, even though a lot of people know gold is better. It's more stable. It's it's inflation proof. Some people still use it, but they don't use it for everything. Most people don't go buy their house in gold or they don't buy a car in gold. And and I think this is one of the most important things. You look at the the cryptocurrency market. There's a million cryptocurrencies out there. And people are using whichever ones they think are best for whatever for whatever happens to be the reason they're using it. But Bitcoin is not out there saying you can't use Litecoin, you can't use Dogecoin. Like that it's it's absolute free competition, but the people who make the US dollar are out there saying you can't use those things. And and I think that's where that's where the whole system breaks down. So if they wanted to use a fiat principal currency, that's absolutely fine. I wouldn't put my savings in that, but I might, let's say I have all my money in, in, in Bitcoin or gold, I might use a Bitcoin ATM or a gold ATM to pull out a couple hundred dollars when I'm going you know, on a vacation or whatever and I want to pay for things when I'm going out to eat. And I know all the restaurants take US dollars, so I'll pay them with that and I'll, I'll exchange my currency. That's totally fine. But it's this idea that we have to be forced to use it. And especially if, you know, oh, well, if you use that currency, because you're using that currency, you have to pay a tax on it. But you have to use that currency. Now we're talking about a violation of the non-aggression principle because you're now forcing them to use a currency so that you can then tax it. Whereas if that was a condition, if I were to understand, okay, so you're telling me if my restaurant accepted Bitcoin instead of dollars, I wouldn't have to pay taxes on it because it's all in Bitcoin. Why wouldn't I just switch to Bitcoin? Or maybe I would allow people to pay in dollars, but the same thing down here in Mexico where, yeah, you can pay in dollars. You can pay in pesos, you can pay in dollars. If you pay in dollars, you're gonna pay more. They're gonna mark it up 10, 20%. Fine, you wanna pay with dollars? Well, I have to pay taxes on those dollars, so you're gonna have to pay 10 or 20% more. But it's easy for you to carry around the paper, so maybe that's what you prefer to do. And if you wanna do that, I'm gonna charge you the markup because I have to pay the tax on it. If that's what people want to do, and if that's the society that we evolve into, I'm fine with that. But we have to understand that, one, is that the reason for the taxation? Because as of now, no. The, the, the tax is not on the transaction of their currency. The tax is on the sale. It's the activity. And if you use a different currency, they still want to tax it. So we have to come to an agreement and an understanding on that. And then we have to resolve the issue of, whether or not you're allowed to use competing currencies. Because if you're not allowed to use competing currencies, then that taxation is still theft. I, I guess the one problem I have with that is that it kind of defeats the purpose of a currency. You know, a, a currency is supposed to be a liquid asset that is fungible, that can be exchanged for a variety of products. And I think you alluded to kind of the issue in the first place, like not everybody takes gold. Not everybody takes Bitcoin, Litecoin, Dogecoin, any of the thousands of cryptocurrencies that are out there. Nobody wants to have to keep track of it all. Like that's too much, it's too time consuming. The whole point of a currency is to have a simple method of exchange. If you, would, if you want competing currencies, why not just go to the barter system um, where every item is a currency in itself? Um, you know, you, 
it's kind of like a the problem of the heap like how many currencies are we going to add in before we're just meaninglessly uh exchanging well, these tokens and they that, all become one currency that's an interesting point and we had i mean you know the gold was created or coin metal coins were created as mm -hmm. currency to solve that problem of barter and then mm -hmm. we evolved from there but the the thing is like things are complicated now but it's because of the government i mean think about it let's say and, and i this is something i wanted to do about um close to 10 years ago now and i started doing this um until i found out i couldn't but what i wanted to do is i wanted to create a bank where you could deposit your gold and i would give you a mastercard or a visa and you could go to any restaurant or any business in the world that took Visa, Visa or MasterCard, you could swipe it. And when they say your charge is $10, it would be as simple as that. Okay, $10. $10 worth of gold is coming out of your account. And my company would handle the transaction of, okay, we've got, um, you know, if, 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 we need, if we need more dollars to send to these places, we'll take some of the gold. We'll take it to the market because there are tons of markets that exchange dollars for gold and dollars for Bitcoin and Bitcoin for gold and everything else. All those exchanges are there. If you want us to do this in, in, the, in the snap of a finger, we're going to exchange your currency for the currency that, that, the, that the vendor wants. And for you, it's just going to be as, as simple as swiping your card. That's what I was going to do. But let me tell you how difficult it is. In, in the, the current situation, I would have to create a bank, and I wanted to do this in, in uh, 2012, uh, 2011, 2012. Around that time, we were still under regulations that came about after the 2008 housing crisis where there were no new banks being chartered. So even if I had the tens of millions of dollars that were required to start this bank, and even if I wanted to build this bank as a proof of concept, I'd be I'd be committing several felonies if I just wanted to build this bank, build this bank, um, just to just to prove that hey this this works so that I could approach investors. I'd be committing felonies. I wouldn't be able to tie it into Visa or Mastercard until I had an actual bank, and even if I had those tens of millions of dollars, I couldn't create a bank because they were so scared of of the banks shutting down so fast from the 2008 crisis. They were like, hey, if you create a bank, it's going to fail. So no one's allowed to make any new banks. And I don't think it was until after Trump got elected, which was, which was what, eight years later, that they said, okay, you can start having new banks again. So the, the, the difficulty, I agree, there's a, there's a complexity that you're talking about, which is really difficult. Well, okay, I'm at a restaurant in Mexico. I have my, my Bitcoin account. And I can change that for dollars, but then somehow I have to transfer the dollars to my bank account, and then I have to pull that out of an ATM, and then I have to figure out where to convert it. That's complicated as hell. But if the government weren't standing in the way and trying to control the currency, it could be made so, so simple. And that's, that's the problem I have. And, and, you know, there's always people, I mean, taxi cabs used to be a pain in the ass for me. Right, because you have first you have to find one, and if you're like I, you know, you're visiting a city you don't know, where do I get a cab? Can I jump outside and put my hand up? Do I have to call a number? Do I have to go find someone? Before we have our, our maps and our cell phones and our Uber and Lyft and everything else, but then somebody came along and said, hey, you know what? This is too difficult. Let's make it easy. And even then, the government tried to get in the way. So so I think, you know, you're you're right about the complexity of things, 
but we have to we have to keep an eye on that complexity and ask because it's not always obvious it's not always obvious that the government is behind it or that somebody's pointing a gun at somebody to make sure that we don't have an easy way because it's more profitable for things to be difficult we we have to we have to examine that and we have to look a little bit deeper and end of rant <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, I'm, I'm just chewing on that a little bit so yeah it, it's almost paradoxical because it, it like i said like the functional utility of a currency requires some sort of standard for it um you know it, it, it almost goes back to uh every lifestyle bubble having its own language um where you know socialism or capitalism means different things to different people and the need to have sort of um, an agreed upon definition of words those words are a currency for exchanging ideas um and they're more effective when there's a standard value to the words and a currency is more effective when it has a standardized value and the more right. definitions of words or the more different kinds of currencies the less useful they are but what standard do we have now um which is the u.s government standard and they are setting it so right, that's is... why i would advocate the transparency and okay, so for us to have more of a role let me let me assume that they're they're setting a standard what are mm. they standing stand what standard have they set what is one dollar worth I, I'm not advocating their standard. I'm advocating a standard. Okay, so in 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 an ideal, and I understand you might not have the answer, right? In a hypothetical yeah. world, we'll come up <laughs> with an answer. But but like, but that's the thing. What is one dollar worth? Is it worth a Happy Meal? Is it worth a, a thousandth of a house? Is like, what is it? Because okay, well, a thousandth of a house how, here. Well, but that house is bigger, so it's only worth one ten thousandth of that house. Um, everything is all relative and and in fact you can say um you can buy something for a dollar take it somewhere else and sell it for two and it's not that the thing changed at all it's and it's not that the value of the dollars changed it could be that the person who you sold it to for two has more money and they're more willing to get rid of it maybe they really want the thing that you have maybe they're paying you $2 because they don't want to have to go all the way to where you got it for $1 and you save mm -hmm. them some time. Like, yeah. And that's confusing enough to keep track of with one currency. Imagine if there were now two currencies or three different currencies and you had, you know, some dollars you got that you did this much work for, you have some pesos that you did this much work for, you have some bitcoins that you did this much work for. And then the person's like, well, I'll sell it to you for this many dollars, this many bitcoins or this many pesos. And then you're having to calculate three currencies, how hard you worked for each one, how worthwhile it is for you to pay with any one particular currency. And you're doing that well, I think every that's... time you make a transaction, that's exhausting. Like I just but want I... one currency that I can compare the value of it to different services, jobs, et cetera, that I have. I think that's something that, that we just kind of need to get over. I mean, because one, there's like, things are always going to change wherever you are, right? But it's it's, you know you you go and you buy okay you bought a new tv and then you're out at like you know best buy and you're like and you're looking at the tvs oh man this is the exact same tv i got and it's 20 bucks cheaper 50 bucks cheaper mm -hmm. like you can sit there 
and like fight with yourself over, man, should I pack it up and, and take it back to the other store? Should I, you know, should I do all this work to get my $20? Is it, is it really that big of a deal? Or, oh, I, I, you know, I ordered at this restaurant and then I get the bill and it's like, oh, they charged me $1.20 for an iced tea and the restaurant across the street only charges me 99 cents for an iced tea. Like, should I, should I, should I start a fit about this? Should I say, oh, you need to lower your price. Should I never come to this restaurant again? Like, like we can argue over, over the small exchanges of these things. And, and that's really what it comes down to. And some people do this all the time. I mean, like I said, down here in Mexico, right? People are going to get their bills. Some people are like, they get it. I mean, you're still going to pay it. I mean, when you get a bill at a restaurant, it's $20 instead of 19, like, okay, is that because you're getting ripped off or is that just because of the price that they set? Is it because they added something to the bill that wasn't there? Like all of these little things can happen, but imagine there's two people. Okay, two people go to one restaurant, right? One person orders, this, they, they both order the same thing. They both get a bill. The, the bill is for the same amount. Both people get a bill for $20 for the same meal that they ordered. On one person, his bill says meal 15, drink five. The other person it says meal nineteen drink one. They're they're still paying for what they got, and they can sit there and say like, oh well, well his is different than mine, and then they can argue over this and and you know make a big deal out of it. But at the end of the day, neither one of them was charged five hundred dollars for the meal. Um, they they still got something reasonable what they were expecting. Um, they're you know it's 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 I, I think that's really what's more important because at the end I mean. You look at the stock market. Oh, I sold that stock for for twenty seven dollars and three cents. Oh, I should have waited ten seconds. I should have sold it. I could have sold it for twenty seven dollars and five cents. Nobody nobody splits hairs over that. And I think when you talk about exchanging currencies, it, it can really get into that. And I know like it, that's probably a bad thing to say while Bitcoin's like going through the roof right now. But like on on most days, like from one day to the next currencies don't fluctuate like that the the values of them don't fluctuate like that unless something catastrophic is happening or like they're printing tons of it or you know there's there's questionable you know whatever about foreign policy and all this other stuff um that's that's where that stuff start stuff starts to happen but i think in most cases you know it doesn't need to be that fixed like things like you're driving in you're, you're you know you're driving on the freeway is your car going exactly 65 miles an hour? You sure it's not going 65 and a half or 66 or 68 or 62? Like, no, you you kind of naturally just go with the flow of traffic. Um, and it doesn't, like, even if traffic's flowing, it doesn't even matter if everyone's going the speed limit. If everyone's going about the same speed, everyone's kind of happy. And I think that's that's kind of the thing. Like, life, life is fluid. Nobody's going to live an exact number of years. Nobody's going to, um, you know, when you go to your job, nobody's going to work an exact number of hours. You're going to work 40 hours, 39. You're going to sleep on the job part of the time. You're going to take a long break. Like all of this stuff happens. And like we like to say there's a standard, but but life is like more fluid than that, I think. At the end of the day, multiple currencies is still more complicated than one currency. Um, you know, like what are we going to make everybody then accept Bitcoin and pesos and dollars for their services? What if somebody only wants to accept dollars because that's what they are most confident that they can exchange with somebody else? Well, and if we have this currency 
um, like like if everybody is able to accept and use all these competing currencies and you have dollars and like nobody in the area is accepting dollars only bitcoins or you know like you you really want to get burgers instead of pizza but you know the pizza place doesn't right. accept your dollars only you know it's well, it, it's more complicated and it's it, it adds too much unpredictability it doesn't, it doesn't have to be because ultimately mm -hmm. Like, I mean, everyone's, every restaurant has, has some sort of credit card machine or something, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine yeah. a restaurant says, I only want to accept dollars mm -hmm. and you stick a credit card in their machine and they get dollars. Mm -hmm. That's it. They don't have to know what currency you gave them or what went and traded or all the stuff that happened behind the scenes. And that's what I mean about like, we can have technology this, the same way currency made bartering easier. Technology mm -hmm. can make multiple currencies easier. But we have to get government out of the way first. Okay, so then a private bank would control the value of the currency, and I no that that happens in a market. Mm -hmm. That happens in a market because the the bank. I mean, the bank might have um, you know lots of assets that they can exchange within their own um, ecosystem. But the reality is, at some point, if everyone's getting rid of one currency, the bank's not going to be sitting there with all of that currency in their account, especially if everybody's getting rid of it, they're going to take their excess and they're going to, they're going to put it in, in other markets to try to get rid of it and take on different assets. And that's how, that's how an, an exiting currency is going to, is going to fail. Everyone wants to get rid of it, including the big banks. Um, so but I mean, what is the, the difference market. between this, uh, this credit that the bank is using as sort of a unifying currency and the state with its dollar. Like what's really the difference between the state and the bank at this point? If the bank is this unified currency exchange and everyone's using credit and the bank is doing because the, the table I can map, have, that's exactly what the state does already. But I can have one bank and you can have mm -hmm. another bank. And mm -hmm. my bank can use one exchange and yours can use a different exchange. They can use completely mm -hmm. different marketplaces. And that's, I mean, just like different it, states do, you know, we have, uh, Japan has yen and China has. Um, sure. But why does it need to be the government? I mean, if, if somebody else is capable of doing it, why does it, and fine, let the government participate too. I have no problem with that. Let the government mm -hmm. have their currency, but just don't tell me I have to use theirs. That's the only problem I have with it. Let them have their currency. Let, let all 50 states, and that's actually how it was before the Fed came around. All 50 states had their own state banks, and they were issuing their own state bonds and state notes, and, and banks would issue their own money based on what they were holding in their accounts. So, like, that, like that stuff is, like, it has happened before. And, yeah, it gets complicated, and, and, yeah, you know, tying things together makes things easier, but you have so many different ways. I mean, Visa and MasterCard. Like anywhere you go, they pretty much accept both. A lot of places also accept Discover and American Express. But if you have a credit, and, and this happens too. You, I, I got a call from a friend of mine. He was visiting Cuba and he didn't take any cash with him. And then he found out that the Cuban ATM didn't work with his card. Um, and so he had to call me up and I had to Western Union him some money. But it's it's like, it's like we we don't have a perfect system now. Things can get better, but why doesn't the ATM there work with his card? It's probably got a lot to do with the government, especially because Cuba and the United States don't get along too well. 
But if you get rid of the governments and they're fighting, why wouldn't they have an ATM there that spits out US dollars? Just like in Mexico, they have ATMs that'll spit out pesos or dollars, whatever you want, you ask for it. And they've got all kinds of little scams in there too. <laughs> the ATM will ask you, do you want me to do the currency conversion for you? And they'll usually give you some bullshit rate, which is much worse than if you just say no um, and, and let your own bank back home in the US do, do the currency conversion. So there's, there's, there's gotchas to look out, you know, for with that kind of stuff too. Um, what, what's stopping of, these companies from competing and feuding with each other as well? You know, like you can't play a PlayStation game on an Xbox. So, you know, if you have this credit, you can't exchange it at these ATMs. You know, it kind of they have increases that, that splintering. <laughs> they have that ability now, but they've they've realized that they make more money if they if they I don't want to say play cooperatively, but I mean, you have so Visa, Visa and MasterCard are not really banks. They're transaction facilities. When you have a Visa card, like so, so let's say you have like Capital One, right? Capital One is the bank. They're the ones actually lending the money. The Visa and the MasterCard and Capital One will actually issue sometimes a Visa, sometimes a MasterCard. Sometimes banks will issue both, um, whichever one is more convenient for them. Um, Visa and MasterCard are just the transaction companies. They don't actually lend any money. They just work with the banks. They make sure that the money gets to, to the restaurant and then make sure that the money gets taken out of, out of the bank's account and into the other, into the restaurant's bank account. Um, and they charge, they charge a percentage for that. And they have all kinds of little gimmicks about, you know, okay, we're going to give people cash back. Ooh, I'm getting free money. No, the, that money was actually added in the restaurant that, you know, they know they're going to, we're, we're going to pay a 3% on every transaction that comes through here. Um, we're going to, we're going to raise the rates a little bit They're You know, they're not just taking a loss there. They're going to raise their fees a little bit so they can make that money. And then that money gets returned back to you, the customer. And that's why you choose visa over mastercard or something like that, or one bank over another. So they're absolutely competing, but they, they know that, you know, you, you have, when you open up a restaurant, you don't have to call Visa and call MasterCard separately. No, you call the company who makes the computer who goes that that charges the cards. And those companies know, well, hey, let's let's make these people accept everything. Let's make them take Visa, MasterCard, Discovery, and American Express, because those are the four biggest companies. Those are the ones that have banks issuing so many cards. And so they they deal with all that stuff for you. All you do is you buy you buy the machine and they get you approved for everything. And they do this because they know they're going to make more money if you accept more cards. So, so yes, these banks are being competitive, but none of the banks have the power. Well, I'll, I'll take this back in a second. None of those banks have the power to say, uh, we're not, we're not going to work with this business unless, um, unless they refuse to accept American Express. We're, we're not going to let them take Visa. Well, if you don't let this business take Visa, and if you did that to all these millions of other stores, those millions of other stores might say, hey, you know what? We don't like Visa and what they're doing, so we're just going to say, yeah, screw Visa. We're going to take American Express and MasterCard. So they don't, they don't have that power. Now, there is the part where they do tell the government, hey, make it extremely expensive to make new banks. Make it extremely expensive to make a new, a new organization that competes with Visa and MasterCard. Um, and, and a lot of that, a lot of that is the fact that they would have to rebuild those relationships with all these businesses and, and competing with those guys, they're giants. It would take a lot of work and a lot of money to come in and compete with those guys. But when they tell the government, make it difficult, that's, that's re where the real ugly things 
happened because like I said, I'm just a, I'm just a guy. I had, I had almost no money. I found a guy who, who was going to give me, um, he, he gave me $20,000 in seed money to start this business and to create a proof of concept and to go as far as we could with this. And, and because he liked the idea and we were going to create a system that had the same visa card, the same, you would have a card that would take you anywhere in the world and you could use it and you could pay in gold or further down the line, we were like, Hey, let's add Bitcoin. But we just couldn't make it happen because of the government and things. And, and so how many other businesses are not able to do that and, and go look for this. There's, um, cause I was looking for this recently. Look for a credit card that is like a, an ATM card that lets you spend Bitcoin. And there's about 10 companies out there who have something like this, right? It's a, it's a, it's a Visa or a MasterCard that lets you spend Bitcoin. The problem is if you look at every single one of them, that's, that's not what, that's what I want it to be. That's what a lot of people want it to be, but that's not what it is. And it's because of the, the regulations and everything else. So what these cards actually are is you have your Bitcoin in an account. When you want to use the card, you have to transfer the Bitcoin. You have to do the market thing manually. They can't do it automatically. You have to do it manually. And then you're basically charging a prepaid card and then you can go spend it. And some of these different cards, they have you know slightly different variations of that. But nobody lets you swipe a card the same way if I swipe my U.S. card in Mexico, it automatically converts it from, from dollars to pesos. There's nobody that lets you swipe a Bitcoin card and automatically switches it from Bitcoin to pesos or Bitcoin to U.S. dollars. Nobody has that because it's illegal. You know, I, I don't have much to say to that because I'm very much getting out of my element here. I was not prepared to talk about currency. Um, and the nature of it. Um, I'm learning quite a bit from you right now, actually. This is... Uh... Hopefully everyone else is yeah. too. Don't steal my <laughs> ideas and make a billion dollars. Yeah. If you do, um, at least no, I'm not sure percentage. that I would. <laughs> Honestly, I'm getting kind of the same feeling that I got reading um, sort of the economic calculation parts of Karl Marx and Das Kapital when he's talking about the price of linen and coats and commodity exchange. And it kind of gives me a headache. I'm not a big fan of these kind of nitty-gritty processes like at the end of the day i just want a world where i can do my part to contribute where i can do something that i'm good at that helps out other people and then when i'm done with that at the end of the day not have to worry about where i'm going to sleep at night or where my meal is going to come from or how i'm going to get my medicine you know i want to do my part absolutely and then not have to worry about anything and, and um, that goes and, back and to I know we, that that's sort of a utopia that's an ideal but that's kind of the, the trajectory that I want to move towards politically right and, and I want to say that's that's kind of where we started this out with common ground mm -hmm. because I want the same thing I want it for myself I want it for you I want it for everybody else like mm -hmm. we shouldn't have to I mean everything we have machines producing everything for us we have so much abundance in this world because of our our ability to overproduce everything which which has its pitfalls too but nobody should be should be sitting up worrying about how am i going to get my insulin how am i going to get my food how am i going to keep a roof over my house over my roof over my head um um i i absolutely agree with you on that and and i'm working for that too um i know you are and 
I'm glad we had this conversation. Um, Absolutely. You know, we we definitely like I I learned some interesting ideas from you. Hopefully, you you learned the same from me. And hopefully, yeah, everybody gonna... listening got you know got some good ideas too. But but I want to go back to like it, it's funny we started we started this conversation by telling people this is how you have a conversation, and we kind of went into mm -hmm. an actual conversation. So we did. Um, so to anybody listening, agree or disagree. And, and, and this is, this is beautiful too. Like, I, I know you said some things that I disagreed with. You allowed me to speak. I allowed you to speak. Um, you're not totally sold on the things that I'm saying and that's fine, but we had the conversation and we didn't try to kill each other. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and you know, things I, are there's be things I'm still considering of what you said, you know, there's stuff that I didn't know. It's, uh, what is it? The big Lebowski new shit has come to light. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I got to sit back. I have to evaluate these things I've learned, compare them to what I know, translate it into my language. And then, you know, next time we speak, I might have a response on it. But, you know, I, I think when you go into a conversation, it's important to be prepared to learn things that you weren't expecting to, uh, yes. you know, kind of. Yes, like that's kind absolutely. of the goal, I think. You're supposed to be wanting to learn things, but I think a lot of people, once they encounter that, there's an allergy, and I think it might be in the language or you know some right. any of the difficulties we've been talking about. Um, but yeah, yeah, we are coming up on a couple hours here. Yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> I think I do, our last one went long too. as well. I, yeah. I do want to say this too. Don't be afraid to feel stupid, because mm -hmm. you know they they um, going back to my seminar junkie days. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Mm -hmm. you, like, <laughs> Absolutely. Don't be like, don't be afraid to get out of your comfort zone. Don't be afraid to to talk to somebody who knows more than you because that's how you're going to learn things. Um, and don't think just because you know more about one subject that 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 you're smarter than them. Maybe they know more about another subject. Um, and and that's you know, and don't be afraid to be wrong. Don't be afraid if, if somebody challenges something you say. Don't fight with them on it. Just just mm. like hear what they have to say and question whether or not they're right because you might be wrong and you might learn from that and you might grow and you might become a better person, a smarter person who can then go into your next conversation and go even further and level up. So Absolutely. that's that. John, do you have any any closing remarks? Um, if you want to plug any websites, if people want to find more, find more about you, follow you on Twitter or anything like that. Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at John D. Gordon. I, uh, you know, I shit post. I sometimes have insightful things to say. Um, uh, honestly, uh, good luck, everybody, is what I really have to say, because uh, I think 2021 is going to put 2020 to shame. Um, so take Ouch. care of each other. Good luck, everyone. And uh, be safe out there. Have a good night. Well, I, I'm, a, I'm glad you at least ended it on a happy note with even though 2021 <laughs> is going to be a shit show, take care of each other and be happy. Yeah, um, absolutely. Awesome. So, John, I want to thank you again. This has been another amazing conversation with you. Um, another two-hour conversation. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, man. We, uh, we get into it. Yeah, um, <laughs> but it's, it's awesome. Definitely want to have you back again, and we'll, we'll keep talking mm -hmm. about something else. Maybe we'll, we'll follow this conversation up with another, um, and uh, who knows? Um, yeah. but of course, everybody, if you're, if you liked what you heard, make sure you share this with your friends. Um, you know, for the same reason that we've been the same things we've been talking about through the entire show, share information with people. Um, maybe either of us said something that was wrong on this show. Um, send us a comment. Um, let us know, let us know we're full of shit. Um, tell us when we're wrong and give us your ideas. Don't just tell us we're wrong. Tell us why we're wrong or tell us 
if you have an idea of a better solution to any of the problems that we talked about, give us your ideas. Don't just sit there and say we're wrong because that's not productive. Um, of course, head over to taxationstheft.info, send me all your money, and I'll send you all my swag. Um, and go to YouTube and make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel and everywhere, everywhere else. We're on a couple new platforms now too, BitChute and somewhere else. Um, more info on that later. Um, and we did announce the winner of the amazing, uh, or we did select the winner of the amazing uh, Opener 3000. So uh, we have contacted them. We're waiting for the response. And uh, we want to get that sent out because um, that is uh, that was an awesome little giveaway that we did. Um, self-defense opener tool. Guys, thank you so much for subscribing, for listening, and for being with me for this long-ass conversation. I need to go drink some water. I'll catch you guys mm -hmm. next time. Absolutely. Taxation is theft. Take care.